Thank you for joining us here at First Baptist Church of San Antonio, whether online or on broadcast, in your homes or wherever you may be. We want you to know that you are more than welcome to be a part of the life of this church, and we want you to know that we want you to meet Jesus today. In order for this to happen regularly, we need your support, we need your prayers, and we need your financial gifts. Please continue to give and be a part of what we do today. Amen. This week we have been reading together Genesis chapter 22, the story of Abraham offering Isaac. As we come to that text, we're going to read a portion of this aloud together, the first eight verses. And we'll listen for what the Lord has in store for us today. So if you would find that on your listening sheet, Genesis 22, 1 through 8, we're going to read this aloud together. So if you would stand with me and let's read. This then is the text for today. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked on together. May God bless the reading of his word. This, Genesis 22, is one of those texts that evokes a lot of questions. This is one of those that we come and we ask a lot of it. We wonder about that which is in between the words and the verses. And we're going to answer some of those questions today. We likely won't be able to get to all of your questions, but we are going to answer five. We're going to look at five different questions as we work through Genesis chapter 22. And we're going to start with one of the most prominent, why isn't Abraham emotional? If you were told to sacrifice your son... Wouldn't you argue like Moses argued with the bush? Or, at the very least, wouldn't you ask questions like Jesus in the garden? Abraham, though, was neither of those things. 
In fact, what we get from Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 is all succinct, all completely faithful. Abraham here epitomizes the call of Proverbs to watch your words. In the same way, here we see Abraham living with that same warning of James to guard your tongue. See, here in Genesis 22, Abraham is a man of few words. We see it right from the very beginning in verse 1. Abraham gives us three simple words, here I am, reminiscent of Samuel. Abraham is faithful and strong. Seven letters, we see his quiet faith. But as you work through it, there's, there's four other times, too, where Abraham gives us his heart in short phrases. Verse 5, he's a few words, but he, he tells the others to stay here with the donkey while, while I and the lad go over there and worship and we'll return. That return is plural. Then you see the back and forth between Abraham and his son in verses 7 and 8. God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Those are foundational, faithful statements built on solid rock. Verse 11, we get another here I am. Verse 14, Abraham says, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. What Abraham is doing here is almost incomprehensible. Why are there so few words? Why is there no emotion leaping off the page? Where is Abraham's heart? Why is he not worried about this? Where is the anxiety? When we read this, we want anxiety spilling off the page, and there isn't any. Where is it? Why isn't Abraham emotional? He doesn't fly off the handle at God. We wonder that because that's what we think of ourselves. The same way, we don't get any of the inner turmoil the, the, the passage doesn't tell us that his stomach is turning. You see, these are hard questions. In fact, uh, many of the commentaries that I read this week asked those same things. In fact, as much as dealing with the text, they wanted to deal with what was Abraham thinking? Kind of a, a similar way, I, I was reading a, a, a Jewish source for this text and one of, one of the guys said, I don't even care what the text says. I care what's between the lines. How mad Abraham must have been. How confused he was. How scared he was. But, but let me tell you, that is a poor way to study Scripture. In fact, that's not how we study Scripture. We don't look in between the lines. We look at the words that the Lord our God has given us. Our guesses and that which we speculate isn't the text. Here, as we come to Scripture, like we do every week, Genesis 22 gives us everything we need to know. And here in this account, Abraham's deepest thoughts are not in there. We don't need them to know the heart of this text. All we need are those few words that Abraham spoke. Maybe we just need verse 1, where Abraham is obedient without question. There's no complaint here. God calls and Abraham says, here I am. This causes us to pause, to see uninterrupted obedience. Because it's a feat we find lacking in our own hearts. 
We want to hear some kind of inner turmoil because that's all we know. We can't imagine obedience with so few words. But by the work of the Spirit, it was so. Now, question number two, where did that ram come from that's caught in the thicket over to the side? Now, astonishingly, Abraham tells us before it even happens where it comes from. Verse 8, God will provide. Before there's even a hint of a secondary sacrifice, God will provide. Verse 14, Abraham says it again, the Lord will provide. And our inclination is to glance over those few words, but these few words are the heart of the text and who our God is, that our God supplies everything that we could possibly need in every aspect of our lives. There's not one aspect of your life that God won't touch. And even in his promises, God provides everything possibly that's needed for his promises. And it will be so no matter what we think or know. You see, earlier in his life, Abraham has already questioned God's promise. He ran ahead of God with Hagar. But now says, God says, don't question me. I'm going to take care of you. You don't have to protect my promise. You don't have to go out on your own to produce the promise. I'm going to take care of you, and I will provide everything possible that you need in this life. You see, the weight of these words remind us that even as parents, we're not the provider. When we think about our children, when we think about our families, when we think about those that God has placed in our lives, we're not the providers God is going to take care of everything necessary. You know, sometimes we lay our head on our pillow at night and we picture ourselves as some great provider for those around us. That's not the way of Scripture. The way of Scripture is that God will be the one to take care of us and our families. And everything that you have, everything that you've acquired is of God. And what we need to recognize, this is a place of freedom for us that you don't have to worry about tomorrow. You don't have to worry about the future. You don't have to worry about providing for the promise because God has already provided for the promise. Everything that is necessary is in its place and ready to go. God will provide. And so we're free. We're free from that responsibility. Our call is to obey and be near to our God. You see, Jesus lays all this out beautifully in Matthew chapter 6. You don't have to worry about food or clothing or water. Everything that we've been taught is a need. All of those needs that we're taught are needs. They're, they're physical things. But the only way you'll ever find life is to seek first the kingdom of God. You seek the kingdom of God above your family, your kids, your job, spring break, your rest, your lunch. You seek the kingdom of God first and life flourishes. Now, we need to ask too, when did Abraham become Superman? Because in these few words, in Genesis chapter 2, he, he, he seems to have this iron will that is revealed in the staccato phrases and the unflappable obedience. But if we go back, we know the story of Abraham. If you go back just a few chapters, you go back to chapter 16 or 17 or go back to chapter 12, this, this is not who Abraham was. 
In, in Genesis 12, Abraham is scared of Pharaoh and he tells his wife to lie. But even worse, we get to Genesis 16 and 17. Abraham literally laughs in the face of God saying, this cannot happen. God reveals the truth of his promise and Abraham says, no. Abraham says, that is impossible. You see, when we go to Genesis 17, you, you get Genesis 17, you see that inner dialogue and the turmoil that we all love. Abraham laughing at God, telling God that God doesn't know what he's doing. And in the whole scene, Abraham has a child with a woman who's not his wife because he didn't think God could do what God said he was going to do. Then, those chapters, Genesis 12, Genesis 16, we get an Abraham that's like us. That's an Abraham that we can relate to. But, but Genesis 22, now it's five chapters later, he, he seems to be Superman. But don't you understand, it, it, he, he's not Superman. This, this is the work of sanctification. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, God says that he sends his spirit upon his children and the spirit grows us up in our faith so that today our faith is stronger than it was yesterday. This is a part of the work of the spirit in you, building you up into the creation that God intended for you to be. You see, in sanctification, this is what God does, that your trust then allows you to follow his plan and God makes us more like him. He strengthens our faith to the, to the point of unparalleled obedience. And one of the things that happens in this sanctification process, so as your believer in Jesus is building you up, your, your, your fists that were once tightly holding things you never thought you would let go of, start to loosen. In fact, it's almost like Jesus comes in with a chisel and starts chiseling away at our frozen fingers and opens them up so that we can start letting go of stuff we should have let go of a long time ago. See, when we come to faith, there's a lot of our things in our life that we need to repent of. And there's a lot of things in our life that we need to let go of. There are things that we hold back. There are pet sins that we don't really want forgiveness for. There are things in our lives that become idols that we worship as much, if not more so, than our God. And God says, let them go. And, and you can let them go in the work and ways of the Holy Spirit. And, and so as we do, and, and, and as these things begin to be released from our hands, we flourish in the work of Jesus Christ. He strengthens us to the point of unparalleled obedience. You see, what you need to read in this, Abraham's actions are not beyond you. you. You can let go of it too. All of those things that God has said let go of, you can let go of it. You can be free by the work of the Holy Spirit. The result of letting the Spirit work in you, we can be obedient with those few words, even as little as here I am. Inevitably, too, someone always asks about Isaac. Well, what about Isaac? What was Isaac thinking? We have to be careful here. As we work through these pages, we know that, that Isaac is sort of secondary. It's, it's a horrific image for Abraham placing him up on the altar. 
But, but this sacrifice and, and Isaac's work is so much more. You see, this is, this is more than losing a son. When we go back and we look at those previous passages like Genesis 17 or Genesis 21, in this sacrifice, Abraham isn't just losing a son. He was losing every promise that God ever made him. Isaac was the promise of God. Isaac was the miracle baby that the entire Jewish nation would rise out of. Out of this very lineage, we would receive Jesus Christ. With this sacrifice, would we even know the New Testament? In fact, look with me. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. This is the beginning of the New Testament. The first verses of the Gospel of Matthew. Listen to how it reads. It, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Here we are, that, that promise that God made to Abraham coming to fruition that we read about in our New Testament. Then verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. This, this is the heart, the beginning, the initial stages of the, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ our Lord. Abraham is about to put all of that on the altar because God told him to. You see, Abraham knew that God could still do it. That even if God called him to sacrifice Isaac, God could still get to Matthew 1.1. That even if God called him to sacrifice Isaac, God was still going to keep his promise we know that God's ways are beyond our ways, that, that the impossible is made possible by the spirit of the living God. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abraham knew that even in the sacrifice of his son, God could raise him from the dead if it was necessary. See, that's the power and work of God. God is a God who raises those that are lost and dead out of that death and into new life. That was the picture of baptism that we had. This work goes all the way back into Genesis where, where Abraham believes in the resurrection and knows that the resurrection is coming. He doesn't come by this on his own. This is the work of the Spirit of God in his life, teaching him the ways of God. And our God is a God who moves beyond the physical limitations of this life and moves us forward into resurrection. So that in each one of us, when we die, we're crucified with Christ at the cross, but we are raised to walk in newness of life. See, God's always going to keep his promise, and he's going to provide a way no matter what. That's why Abraham spoke so few words, just did what God asked him to do. See, Abraham knew that God's word was the only way forward in life. And so if God said it, it was so. Now, the final question. Who has God promised us? Because you see in Genesis chapter 22, there's an intentional geographical connection where here it says they're going into the land of Moriah. And we hear later in 2 Chronicles and other places that it's on the Mount of Moriah where the temple would be built, Amen. which moves us forward to the place where one would be raised from the dead. 
But it's not going to be Isaac. It's going to be Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see, we move then out of the, the promise of Abraham, and we, we move forward into the, to the gospel message, and, and we move forward into the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When God looked down on humanity, he knew that your greatest need would be one you would never fully grasp And your greatest need would be one you would never be able to fulfill. You see, when we think about needs, our minds immediately go to things like food, water, shelter. This physical reality that we can taste and we can see and we can touch. But but long before our eyes were ever opened to it, God set out to take care of the deepest need that every one of us has. The, the, the deeper spiritual need that's found in our soul. You see, when, when the Holy Spirit comes upon your life, or when, when God begins to open your eyes to his truth, you, you begin to notice that the physical needs don't really matter. Like the, the physical needs are not nearly as important as your body has demanded that they are. Now, uh, certainly, something like oxygen it's critical for you to continue to function on this side of eternity. But, but when God reveals himself to you through the scriptures, it, it becomes incredibly clear that air is secondary to the spirit of God. That the physical needs mean nothing in comparison to the spiritual need of your soul to be redeemed. In the holiness of God, we begin to understand that the greatest need a person ever has is to be clean. Now, not clean in the physical sense, but cleansed in the spiritual sense, where the waters of heaven flow over your soul and make everything right. Cleansed so that you can approach the throne of God with confidence. And in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we've been given that opportunity. It's by the body and blood of our Savior that we are redeemed, we're cleansed, we're made righteous so that we can finally enjoy the hope of heaven. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand and through him you can enjoy it and know it now. You see, apart from the work of the cross, we're at a complete loss But by his resurrection, we are saved. 